guys welcome to notorious women podcast i'm lavetta i'm miriam and this is notorious women a comedy podcast about some of history's most notorious women <laughs> we're just yeah. being silly uh-huh she started it she started it i did i did <laughs> you did because i'm still in florida hell so i have to find mm-hmm. my uh joy somewhere somewhere yeah place yeah uh, and i and- get to be the victim of her joy that's fine <laughs> <laughs> so silly. Oh Lord. Oh God. Well, I think we should get started, darling. Uh okay. I believe, let me just double check because we made a, a oomph, not a goof, but a oomph last time. So Listen, I, I love actually, an oomph. Yes. An oomph. An oomph. Uh, it's not a goof. Like like Or is it a like, is it a moof? Listen, it's an oopsie. It's an oopsie. Uh, I have small children. It's an oopsie. Oh, oopsie's much cuter than oomph. Uh, My children would be like, I am not a baby. How dare you? And I'll be like, you're right. I forgot you're grown up. My bad. I know. You want to be big so bad when you're that age. Uh, Like, I beg you to only worry about the problems of childhood as long as you can. I beg you. I know, I know. Um, actually, you are first, my dear, this week. So it's me, it you, your notorious woman this week that you're gonna okay, share with me. So for the first time, don't hate me. Okay, I am doing a two-parter. Okay, what? so it's one person, but I'm gonna talk about her this week, and then I'm gonna finish talking about her next week. I have it, this better be good. That's all I got to say. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Just kidding. Listen, when the woman you're going to talk about is Shirley Chisholm. Oh, mm, oh, oh. You got to honor all she's done. Excuse me. OK. Mm-hmm. All right. That's right. You know what I'm doing now, Miriam, as a what, black what? person. Yes. From America. <laughs> uh huh. I got all my black judgment. Yes, I I know. Yeah. No, I'm ready. All right. I'm ready for you. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. I I should be more scared than I am. I know that. Let me pull out my monocle and my uh, judgmental eye. (laughs) And let me fail utterly. Awesome. No, no, no. (laughs) No, Shirley, this is going to be great. I know a little bit, but I am so excited for you to tell me all the stuff I don't know. Well, here's the thing that was amazing, and this is why I made her two-parter, is that I feel like we see her now as this Black female sort of icon, right? Mm -hmm. That she sort of started it in terms of Black women being in politics. At least that's how I see it as a white girl. The popular thing. But yeah, you're not wrong as part of that, but yeah. Yeah, and that's how she's sold in a way. Yeah. So I was like, well, let's see, like what she actually did and and, uh, you know, like and where she came and how she pulled it off, man. Like, there's a lot. OK, well, let's get OK. Into it. So she was born Shirley Anita St. Hill. Uh, her parents were immigrants uh, from Barbados. Uh, she was born in Brooklyn, New York, however, on November 30th, 1924. 
She's of Guyanese and Bajan descent. Um, and she has three younger sister- sisters. So, okay, I have to interrupt you. That's already? Bajan. Oh. Bajan. I'm sorry. See, I've already From failed. Barba- Barbados is Bajan, even though it's a terrible Caribbean accent, but it's Bajan. It's better <laughs> than mine, which was Bajan. Bajan. It's Bajan. Uh, I'll stop. I'm triggering you. Sorry. <laughs> Can you say it again? It's not so beautiful. It's Bajan. The Bajan. 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 Yeah. That's beautiful. Not what I said, but but you said it's beautiful. Um, so her parents were working class. And because they were working class, um, raising children and doing all of the jobs they had to do to get by was too much. So in 1929, when she was five, she and her sisters were sent to live with their maternal grandmother, Emmeline Seal. So she later says, quote, Granny gave me strength, dignity, and love. I learned from an early age that I was somebody. I didn't need the Black Revolution to tell me that. Which I think that's what grandmothers are for, right? Yes. I love that. I thought you would love love that. that. Yes. Um, uh, She went to a one-room schoolhouse uh, while she was there, and she came back in 1934, so about five years later. So, and she back to New York City. So she, uh, because she spent her formative years in Barbados, she spoke with a West Indian accent throughout her life. Uh, in her autobiography years later, so this is what she said. She said, years later, I would know what an important gift my parents had given me by seeing to it that I had my early education in the strict traditional British style schools of Barbados. If I speak and write easily now, that early education is the main reason. Uh, Twitter would have something to say about that today. (laughs) Right. I think that's fascinating. Well, I, I, I know what she, I know what she's saying, but it's like, like the Twitter would be like, Oh, so you're kowtowing (laughs) to the colonists. Mm -hmm. Colonizer mine. You really appreciate those colonists, huh? I think what she's saying is that because of the educational system, depending on where you are in the United States, was could be a challenge for a young black kid, especially yeah. a young poor black kid in the city, perhaps. I don't know what the educational uh, standards were in uh, Brooklyn uh, when, you know, in the um, what I guess it would be like late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm sure it's pockets of it. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's a heyday of Harlem. So she's not up in Harlem with the, the fancy colored folks. Um, <laughs> nope. She in Brooklyn. But I but yeah, a lot of the young people and rightfully so like, you know, there's one thing. But I also think that it's always nuanced when because we've all been colonized. So, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know what she's I know what she's saying. She's saying that, you know, um, but but a lot of people be like, you know, it's like, oh, strict. Uh, educational standards but it's like but it's how educational was it is it just reading writing arithmetic like you can find that anywhere or is it just like another way to colonize black children for the but british it's to colonize because black then children you think about what she later did and and it and it could be very well be that she was when she was little her parents didn't have as much time to to look at her schoolwork and but she probably came home every day and her grandma probably looked and said, what did you do? How did you do it? You know what I mean? Like there was, 
it was just a different way to be educated. Well, and I also think that, um, you know, because in the United States, the educational standards are so vastly different depending on what state you're in. Uh, And even within a state, what part of the state and what neighborhood you're in. Mm -hmm. And therein lies the problem because I had an an excellent education and I come from uh, from Florida back in the day. Uh, I didn't realize how good it was until I got older. And then I actually went to the north and some of the kids, unless they got into like magnet programs or private schools, their education was not the best. Like and I went to all public schools throughout my formative years and but they were like excellent schools i didn't realize how lucky i, I mean, was so it just depends that's yeah. because this the, i remember i remember being in high school and finding out what it took to graduate high school and i remember being like whoa i'm like i could have graduated my sophomore year <laughs> you know what i yeah. mean because yeah. they they keep them on the low end because to balance the fact that it it is not you know, it's not good enough. I'll say that. We don't, not good we don't enough, do enough. I know what she's saying. You know? Yeah, I, I so, get what she's saying. But I'll, yeah. I'll say that she said that. Um, and, and she has a right to feel how she felt, too. You know what exactly. I mean? Like, I know Twitter would have so much fun, but like, that's how she felt. Exactly. Um, so in 1939, she then attended girls high school in in Bed-Stuy, in the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood. But you know it's Bed-Stuy, Okay of Brooklyn, which was a highly regarded and integrated school that attracted girls throughout Brooklyn. Um, it also mentioned in the movie, a chorus line. I think you should transfer to girls high. You'll never be an actress. You know, do you know that what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Thank you. You're, you're such a theater nerd. <laughs> oh, my Lord. You can't hide it. I can't stop. <laughs> All right. Um, so she did really well academically. She was the vice president of the Junior Arista Honor Society. Um, and she was accepted and offered scholarships to Vassar and Oberlin. Um, but they couldn't afford her room and board there. So she went to Brooklyn College, uh, which has free tuition and she could live at home. I heard that. Now, that is a very yeah. like immigrant uh, type of way of looking at or working class, but also immigrants yes. are like, ain't nobody got no money for that. <laughs> you better go over there to Brooklyn College. <laughs> well, it's really interesting for me to to go through this part of her life because both of my parents uh, lived in Brooklyn as kids and were very poor. And so uh, like I, I, I remember I'm going to shout out to my mom who did not get into Brooklyn College and was desperate to get into it. And like got into Hunter instead. And it turned out Hunter was also a really good school. So she's always like, you know, like this world. My my dad went to Cooper Union, which was like free. Um, and so they came from those worlds where like, yes, you can go to college, but no, we can't pay for it. And yes, you have to live at home. Yep. So um, so she earned her Bachelor of Arts. She got her BA from Brooklyn. In 1946, she majored in sociology and she minored in Spanish. She won prizes for her debating skills. She'll come in handy later. What? And she graduated uh, cum laude. I don't know what any of those things mean because I didn't come close to doing any of that. But it's good. Smart. She's smart. Like so many brains. Right. I can't I can't count them because I'm not that smart. Right. Okay. we're clear. So, 
So when she was in college, she was a member of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority and the Harriet Tubman Society. So while she was in the Harriet Tubman Society, she advocated for inclusion, which specifically in terms of black soldiers in the military during World War II, because remember, she was in college during World War II. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, And she also focused on courses uh, to be put into into the university or into the college that focused on African-American history um, and the involvement of more women in the student government. It's it's like happening all over again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, yes, girl. And if I read this seven years ago, I'd be like, and now we're good. But I'd be wrong. It'd be so wrong. Um, so, but you know what? That's how we grow. We go, oh, nah, we're not done. We're never done fighting. And that's the truth. We're never um, done. So she was surrounded by politics growing up. Her father was an avid supporter of Marcus Garvey. Um, and he was also a dedicated supporter of the rights of trade union members. So she also, while she was in Barbados, saw her community fight for their rights um, which, when the workers there were, um, they had like, I think it was the anti-colonial independence movement, which like is interesting considering she went to a very strict British school Ah, that's the dilemma of the colonized. Right? Absolutely. Yep. Right? Um, and, and in such formative years, right? She's like eight around, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So in the late 1940s, she met a man mm-hmm, named Conrad O. Chisholm. That last name sound familiar? Um, so he had come to the United States from Jamaica in 1946, and he was a private investigator who specialized in negligence-based lawsuits. Hold on. So, Her husband was a P.I.? Yeah! Like, where is that story? I oh, know. my Lord. I would like this movie of the week. Just like their, like, story. You know what I mean? And, like, I mean, I love... A mystery situation? Yeah. So like, in the 1950s and like people of Caribbean yeah. descent, like, like, I love that. Oh, man. Where is this story? This is what I want to say. Yeah. Where is this series that I will binge? I will binge it. Like you she's up and coming politics, making the world better. And he's figuring out, you know, what happened. And you're figuring out what happened with him. And you um, know what? They saw crimes. Okay. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Maybe they have capes like on occasion. I don't know. I don't I know. Maybe know. I went too far. It's possible. I'd watch the hell out of that. Yeah, I would too. Um, so they got married in 1949. And unfortunately, with this marriage, she suffered two miscarriages and they did not end up having children. So she ended up not having children. Um, and there people love to theorize that it was her you know, her ambition got in the way, but I just feel like it's really hard to theorize, you know, that. That's such a personal thing. Yeah, and I think people forget, like, I don't think people often consider, like, the emotional and psychological toll it would take on you to have a baby and 
and lose the baby twice. Like yep. some people just can't keep doing it, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like you you could and some people then tell themselves and the world that, OK, you know what? I have other things I want to do. But that's just like a coping mechanism or that's, you know, who knows? So many, so many possibilities. Um, so she did you know this? Because I just learned this, but maybe you did. She was in education for many, many years. Yes, I did know that. Um, so she started out uh, working as a teacher's aide at the Mount Calvary Child Care Center in Harlem. Uh, she was there from 1946 to 1953. Um, meanwhile, she was also furthering her education. Uh, she took classes at night and earned her Master's of Arts in Childhood Education from the Teachers College of Columbia University in 1951. Um, so from 1953 to 1954, she was then the director of the Friend in Need Nursery, which was in Brownsville, Brooklyn, um, which is so far away from Harlem. So I can't figure out where she actually lived because as someone who used to live in New York, you are not... You are not like commuting from Harlem to Brownsville every day. Like, are you? That's going to take you three hours. Yeah, okay. some people may. I, I think it depends on where you are in Brooklyn, as we know. Like, if you're near the main lines, you can. But I mean, also, it's a different time. This is the early 50s. So you do what you got to do if you can get a job, right? That is so. a fact. That is very true. Actually, I think my grandfather... Because he's in Brooklyn, and the story is that he went. I think it was like the Upper West Side, but from way down in Brooklyn, blocked. House. Yeah, I and I also when I first moved to Brooklyn, I lived in the Flatbush area, which is a mostly Caribbean area. Did we have this I conversation worked, already? Maybe because so did and, I. And I worked in Manhattan, like almost so exclusively. Did. So I would take you know the train in. So yeah, but you Manhattan, not like Harlem. All yeah, right. it would be Midtown. Yeah, but again, you got to do what you got to do. You got a job, so. L- listen, I'm going to be for real with you. When Sal and I first started dating, he lived in Brooklyn and I lived in Washington Heights. So. And you like, guys survived. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That is love. Listen, I basically moved into his apartment. Don't tell us. Oh, okay, okay. 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 Um, <laughs> all right. So. um. So she was at the Friend in Need Nursery in Brownsville. Then from 1954 to 59, she was the director of the Hamilton Madison Child Care Center in Lower Manhattan. And there she had 24 employees reporting to her. So from 1959 to 1964, she was an educational consultant for the Division of Daycare in New York City's Bureau of Child Welfare. So there she was in charge of supervising 10 daycare centers, as well as starting up new ones. So she became an authority on early education and child welfare issues. Yep. So, I mean, she, I, I wrote down, so she may not have had biological children, but she had half of New York City's children. Like, Oh, I love that. Yes, right? she did. Yes. So... She enters the world of politics in 1953. She joined Wesley, quote, Mac, unquote, I guess they called him Mac, Holder's effort to elect Lewis Flagg Jr. to the bench as the first black judge in Brooklyn. 
So that's crazy to me. The first black judge, really nobody else you elected as a judge who was black. Okay. We're still doing the first black in 2023, girl. Oh, it's so <laughs> stupid. People Cause are stupid. racism. I'm exhausted. All right. <laughs> so, yeah. Apparently it's still around. Did you know racism? Yeah. What are you talking about? It ended with Barack Obama. Like what are you talking because about? he became president and twice. Yeah. So yeah. I know, but it turns over. out. I know, right? Okay. So the flag election group leader became the Bedford Stuyvesant Political League, BSPL. Uh, and this pushed candidates to support civil rights, fought against racial discrimination in housing, and sought to improve economic opportunities and services in Brooklyn. So she eventually left this group in 1958 because she clashed with Holder over her push to, God forbid, give female members of the group more input in decision making. Like, why would she do that when there were men to make decisions for her? Oh, God. (laughs) Feelings. I have too many feelings. All right. That was not one correct note. Nope. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So she also worked as a volunteer for a white dominate for more than one for white dominated political clubs in Brooklyn, like the Brooklyn Democratic Club, um, the League of Women Voters. And so with the political league, she was part of a committee that chose the recipient of its annual Brotherhood Award. She was also a representative of the Brooklyn branch of the National Association of College Women. So she was trying to make, you know, meaningful changes to the structure of these organizations. Um, And this resulted in her being able to recruit more people of color into the 17th District Club and thus local politics. So, I mean, they say the right grassroots, like start, start small. And that makes a difference. This is like a great example of that. Yeah. And let's be clear, uh, black people in particular, you know, like because uh, I would imagine Flatbush, apparently, I didn't even realize how far back its Caribbean roots go. Yeah. So, And there's certain parts of Brooklyn that have deep Caribbean um, and Caribbean American roots. And one of the way one of the reasons it was is because uh, Caribbean and Caribbean Americans started running for local offices in those areas. Oh, you know, so again, voting matters. Voting matters. Yep, it really does. Yeah, I'm, I moved to Flatbush. And what's funny is it used to it was like a, also a Jewish neighborhood. So it's such a it's yep. an int- it's a really interesting neighborhood. Yeah, um, true. And lots of good food. Oh, girl. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes Sometimes. Me too. Um, okay. So in 1960, she joined a new organization, the Unity Democratic Club, which was led by the former elect flag member, Thomas R. Jones. So the UDC's membership was, was middle class. It was racially integrated. It included women in leadership positions. So that's good. Yeah. So she campaigned for Jones, who lost the election in 1960, but then ran again two years later and he won, becoming Brooklyn's, hold on, second black assemblyman. Cool. So after he accepted 
a judicial appointment rather than seeking re-election, she was like, hold up, I can do this too. So she decided to run for his seat in the New York State Assembly in 1964. Now, she she, she faced, this is going to surprise you, so take a moment. But she faced resistance because she was female. I know. No, Miriam, she faced uh, opposition because she was a female, a female. <laughs> Got to say it like that, because that's oh. how those guys say female. Yeah, a female. <laughs> a female, oh, not a woman, <laughs> no, but no, a female, no, no, no. a female. Red flag. They're terrifying. All the boobs. I'm scared. Okay, so what she did was she appealed directly to women voters. She used her role as Brooklyn branch president of Key Women of America to mobilize female voters. And she won the Democratic primary in June of 1964. And then she won the seat in December with over 18,000 votes over the Republican and Liberal Party candidates, neither of whom received more than 1,900 votes. Okay, Oh, wow. Yes. So she was a member of the New York State Assembly from 1965 to 1968. She sat in the 175th, 176th, and 177th New York State legislators. Now, by May 1965, she had already been honored in a salute to women doers in, in New York. And one of her early activities in the assembly, this is good. We needed this was to argue against the state's literacy test requiring English, holding that just because a person, quote, functions better in his native language is no sign a person is illiterate. Right? Exactly. Exactly. (sighs) Well, common sense. (laughs) Duh. Just, you know what? That's the best response to this. I agree. Duh. Like, really? World? Yeah. Okay. Um, So by early 1966... She was a leader in a push by the statewide Council of Elected Negro Democrats for Black representation on key committees in the assembly. So so some of the things she succeeded in doing while she was there uh, was getting unemployment benefits extended to domestic workers. And I read that and I went, so domestic workers did not have unemployment benefits? Nope. Why is my voice so high? Well, and also, I just want to just uh, just take a moment here to notate that this is what, 1964? Yeah, 66. But 66. Six, in the, yeah, 64. Yeah. Now, Fannie Lou Hamer's in the South. Oh, yeah. And around this time, she she brut- she was brutally beaten by cops because she was oh. talking to local yeah. black people about not even voting, but registering to vote. Yeah. So that's going on while. You know, uh, Shirley Chisholm is doing is, is you know, um, like shooting a, um, you know, having this blazing this trail in New York. And that's even though segregation and racism still is prevalent in the North. One of the ways you can it's not as vicious and as ensconced in society as it is in the South during this time. But there's still a lot of resistance. But you do what mm. you can with what you have. But I just wanted to give people some sort of context for that, like what's going on in the South versus what's going on in Brooklyn. Yeah, that. thank you. That That's a good, that's a good point. If you see like what she's doing in Brooklyn at the same time, 
like it's all very important, but there's it there's all matters. It, yes, yeah. It I think yep. that and honestly, like I'm someone who looks at the burning fire of the world and go, yeah, it's fine. I'm just going to hovel up in my little corner and cry. But it, you know, it really, if you can do a little thing on your, you know, which this is a much bigger thing. This isn't a little thing, but even a little thing can make that difference. So she's watching the civil rights movement, go, you know, 1964, we the Civil Rights Act, like, all of this is happening and she's going, okay, in my corner of the world, what do we need? What and do we need? She's, you know? she's also watched the uh, Montgomery bus boycott yes. that went on in the 50s that lasted for yeah. 18 months. And so like everybody, it's not the struggle for liberation is uh, not just black liberation or gender liberation, but for all of us, it, it, but these are the people that did the work, did the hard yes. work, do it, did the unglamorous work of running for office at a local seat. You think, oh, it's not important. But then like she started at the ground up mm-hmm. working, you know, in, in these political clubs and these, you know, the unions and all of this stuff is interconnected. All this stuff is important. So just want to put that in context for people. She went to these very white democratic clubs in New York that are almost famous for being, let's say, problematic. And uh, she... What are you talking about? There's no racism in, in New York City. What are you talking about, woman? No racism. Not in the norm, not the Yankees. I'm sorry, I'm crying. Um, um, right. So I like this is my moment to share with Lavetta that actually... Um, Right. So, but, and she just kind of went in. She did, you know, she, 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 she made the friends she could make. You know, like I love that about her. She made the connections she could make. She walked away when it was just getting a little too ridiculous. Like, good on her, you know, and she kept going, you know, I'd come home and cry. Let's just know yourself. I would come home and cry. But, Obviously, no, she's you a better, better person yeah. than me. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, she also sponsored, uh, uh, let's get back on track here, a bill called the SEEK program, which was Search for Education, Elevation, and Knowledge, um, which provided disadvantaged students with a chance to enter college while receiving intensive remedial education because this woman knows what education is and she gets it. Because if you were privileged and had tutors from the get-go, obviously you're going to be fine and get into college. But if you weren't, you were the opposite end of the spectrum. Maybe you had to have a job all through school, right? And you couldn't, then you could, you still had a brain, you still had capacity. I love that. I love Absolutely. That. Absolutely. Um, so in August 1968, she was elected as the Democratic National Committee woman from New York State. So... This is just a fun little side note that I I just, I felt like we could we could have fun dissecting. Okay, so in 1964, she was collecting signatures for her nominating petition for state for her nominating petition for state assembly, and she was at a Brooklyn housing project, and an older African American man told her um, told her this this quote. Ready? You're gonna like it. Young woman, what are you doing out here in the cold? 
Did you get your husband's breakfast this morning? Did you straighten up your house? What are you doing running for office? This is something for men. America, bitches. America. Uh, just, just letting you know. America. But you know what she did? She calmly explained her experience, her commitment to the community, and he signed the petition. So, That's what I'm talking about. That's why it. she a boss lady. Yes. Yep. Get it, girl. That's why. That's why. Um, I would be like, you a motherfucker, you know, but that wouldn't help anybody. Um, <laughs> uh, so, okay. So, in 1968, she ran for the U.S. House of Representatives from New York's 12th Congressional District, which, as part of a court-mandated reapportionment plan, had been significantly redrawn to focus on Bedford-Stuyvesant. I keep wanting to say Bed-Stuy because I'm a New Yorker, you know. Um, and she was thus expected to result in Brooklyn's first black member of Congress. Um, that that took too long. It took too long. I was like, yep. yay, but I'm like, no, that took too long. Yep. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm like, it's, I'm going to say it's about damn time. That's what I'm going to say. And then maybe I'll sing the song. I don't know. It's possible. It's about damn time. Well, yeah, we can't afford more than that. No, Lizzo no, that's it. Stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> See, we're lucky because I never hit any notes. So they won't even recognize the song. It'll be fine. So she announced her candidacy around January 1968, and she established some early organizational support. Her campaign slogan was, you want to say it? Unbossed <laughs> and unbothered. Okay. it was You were close, girl, but not oh. quite. It's unbought and unbossed. Are you sure? I, I am. Oh, okay. I, Oops, I, really I stand, stand corrected. <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> but like, listen, I could hear you say those words. All day. You say it in like the best way. Yeah, I'm just like, unbought and unbossed. And, and then it was like, okay, fine, stop it. You're very sweet. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's your story. So in in uh, on June 18th, 1968, the Democratic primary. Uh, okay. I don't know. That was not a sentence. So the Democratic primary was June 18th, 1968. She defeated two other black opponents so State Senator William S. Thompson and labor official Dolly Robertson. She staged in the general election an upset victory over James Farmer, who was the former director of the Congress of Racial Equality, who was running as a Liberal Party candidate with Republican support. And he, they, you know what? She needed to win that. That's what I say. So she was the original AOC, huh? That's right. Okay. Yes. Um, okay, so she became the first black woman elected to Congress and the only woman in the first year class that year. That sounds exhausting. So yeah. Speaker of the House, John W. McCormick, maybe not my favorite person, assigned her to serve on the House Agriculture Committee. House Agriculture Committee. So she was... She was an education specialist from Brooklyn House Agriculture Committee. Sounds like somebody was being set up to fail. Oh, but no, no, no. Bootstraps. What? 
You know what, though? She was fine. So this is, okay, this is where I was like, okay, what's, what happened? She confided to, do you know this? Rev Menachem M. Schneerson. Yes. Okay, I did not. Um, and she said she was upset. She was insulted. And he suggested that she use the surplus food to help the poor and the hungry. <laughs> so, so she did Smart. that. Smart. That's great yeah. advice. Isn't that brilliant? Okay. Do you know who Schneerson is? He's the, the Jewiest of, he is, uh, the Orthodox, like Lubavitch Jews considered him like, like, like Jesus ish, but not Jesus. I don't, oh. not trying to offend my fellow Jews, but like a first coming, if you will. Like he was, and like, like my family was like, no, no, he's just a person. <laughs> um, but he had a lot of, I didn't realize he had this level of like political sway outside of like the Jewish community until now. Um, well, she, he's she's smart to partner with uh, across the aisle like this is truly. But also it's one of those things where marginalized people realize that we all have to come together like the smart ones realize. Yeah. In order to create a powerful political block where we all get uh, the things that we deserve that, you know, feed into the American dream versus being separated and then trying to fight these fights on our own in our small exactly. little silos. So, right. yeah, very smart. It's very smart. I mean, honestly, shout out, like if all the marginalized people got together, n the other people wouldn't win anything ever again. They just wouldn't. Yeah. Because there's too many of us. But it's also like white supremacy is very seductive when people it's think that very they could. Very seductive. People think that they could get enough degrees or have the right kind of job and despite what they look like or their background, and they'll be considered white. And that's just not the case. Nope. It's just not like it's not doesn't matter. Um, sometimes you learn the hard way. Um, okay, so she then met Bob Dole. She worked Bob Dole right uh, to expand the food stamp program. Uh, she played a critical role in the creation of the special supplemental nutrition program for women, infants, and children, aka WIC which we should all know. Um, she would credit Schneerson for the fact that, quote, poor babies now have milk and poor children have food. Yes. Like, yep. stop fighting and feed the babies, you guys. Yep. Yep. Um, so she was the third highest ranking member of this committee when she retired from Congress. This is later. I'm just... Just a little quick note. She said she had faced more discrimination during her New York legislative career because she was a woman than because she could because of her race. Um, but who knows? You know, Twitter would have something to say about that. But yeah. I, I also think that it it's by nature of where she's located because yeah, I think Fannie Lou Hamer would have the opposite thing. Yeah, like, that's you know, and true. Then a lot of black women are like, well, this is equally fucked up so but it's but, but it's uh, true and also you don't actually know what people are thinking yeah and exactly. maybe at this time in this and this place right we're in the north so we don't want to be considered racist so we're just gonna we're just gonna demean the fact that she's a woman yeah and she got a you lot know? of pushback from black men too so 
Yeah. Where that's coming from. Yeah. Um, She joined the Congressional Black Caucus in 1971 as one of its founding members. Uh, In the same year, she was also a founding member of the National Women's Political Caucus. I can't say the word. Um, Finally, she did end up on the Education and Labor Committee um, because she voted for the guy who then became the majority leader. And then he gave her this is this is politics. And she knew how to politic. Um, And then she began exploring her candidacy in July 1971 and formally announced her presidential bid on January 25th, 1972 in a Baptist church in her district in Brooklyn. And that's all I got to say for today. Next week, she's going to run for president. Yay. I love her. I love her too. Love her, love her, love her, love her. Well, let's change gears a little bit. Let's uh, do that. And go to my notorious woman this week, which is, you know, you guys, it has to be Miss Tina <laughs> Turner. Miss Tina Turner, a.k.a. the mm. queen of rock and roll. Okay, let's get it. Listen, nothing about me is surprised. Go on. R.I.P. Miss Tina. Okay. I know, so I love her. Uh, so now this is not going to be like your traditional. A lot of people know everything about Tina Turner pretty much. So I'm going to go over the basics of her life. But I just want to get into some other stuff, some more like uh, deeper discussions about, you know, you know, her her emotional life, you know, experiencing yes. these things. So so Tina Turner was born Anna Mae Bullock on November 26, 1939 in Nutbush, Tennessee, not uh, our city limit. limit. Uh, a small town just outside of Bronzeville, Tennessee. So it's kind of like like we have them here in Florida too, where a lot of the black population were born were from like an even smaller part of a small town. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, that's pretty much what Nutbush is. Like, I mean, the song says it all. So yeah, um, she was the youngest daughter of Floyd Richard Bullock and his wife Zelma Priscilla. Bullock and they were sharecroppers, which is basically, basically, uh, slavery with a little bit like a dollar a day that you make. It. Right. But Let's... it's it's set up for uh, sharecropping families to struggle and to fail, basically, because yeah. white supremacy and America's built on uh, free labor. So there's that. Wait, no, they um, freed the slaves and then everyone had a good time. I don't understand. Yeah. So, I mean, I say all that to say is that sharecropping was brutal. And yeah. many people just were in a, a just never ending cycle of debt and not being able to really uh, pull their bootstraps up because their boots had holes in them and they were falling apart uh, because yeah. sharecropping sucked. Listen, if you don't have the boot, then you can't pull them up. So. Yeah. And oftentimes many sharecropping families like uh, Anna Mays were probably only one or two gen one one or two generations away from slavery and yeah. oftentimes they worked on the same plantation slash farms that their ancestors were enslaved on so yeah. uh and it's by design that's sharecropping it's was by design so fucked up yeah so the family was barely surviving um and they were working you know doing backbreaking work and this is where the the little kids have to help out in the field and because da, 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 they got to right. make the uh the, the quota and the you know uh, but as a young child, she didn't realize just how hard her parents' lives were. And she seemed, you know, when she was very young, relatively happy. Um, okay. But early on, her parents were, she remembers her parents uh, had 
stretches of, of separation. Uh, for mm-hmm. instance, in the 1940s, her parents went to Knoxville to work in a defense factory for World War II. Okay. Again, so more, Tina's more money, I assume. Right. Tina's doing this down in Nutbush while Shirley is in college up in, in uh, Brooklyn. Right. Uh, exactly. I was just thinking that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, what was different about her life, uh, though, was when she was around 11 years old, her mother simply just abandoned the family. Oh, God. Now, she was. Oof. And, you know, and this is where I can have some empathy for her mother. Basically, her mother, uh, like many young women from poor backgrounds, she got involved with the guy, uh, Floyd, uh, got pregnant. And it was like, oh, I mm-hmm. guess. And either her mother from the pressure of society was like, well, you got to get married now. I was married right. now, you know. Yeah. Uh, but also so that's how Zelma, her mother, got into this relationship pretty much. But also Floyd was extremely abusive. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, so the cycle is probably yeah. continuing or beginning. Um, so she just up and left. And there were about four of them. So mm. she Zelma's like, I'm out. Uh, and she really Tina remembers that basically her mother just didn't want any more kids after that first accident. Like she just. But women didn't have access to birth control. Nope. They didn't really have, you know, and then, of their own bodies. Yeah. And then Floyd, you know, oftentimes men are taking advantage of the women. They're taking out their frustrations on having to be a sharecropper yeah. out on, um, you know, and they said that he had a high uh, role, like a high status on a sharecropping. But I don't know how high that was. But he he, he basically took it out on Zelma and the kids, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so they were, they were pretty much in extreme poverty, uh, but they were together at first. And that's what Tina, that's what anime remembers. Okay. Um, but so Zelma was just, she just left and moved to St. Louis, uh, big city, uh, to get better work without the responsibility of being, raising children and, uh, cooking the food of an abusive man. Yeah. Uh, so she was just abandoned by her mother. That's, oof. And you can imagine that Floyd probably turned his frustrations onto the children. Yeah, that's you know, setting. Yeah. You know, but to make matters even worse, two short years later, Floyd remarried another woman and moved away to Detroit and just left the children in a what shack. Fuck. By oh themselves in the middle of a rural and racist town. They, they just they just abandoned like they literally abandoned the children. And I didn't realize this until I watched her new uh, her more recent documentary that she produced that she talked about that because a lot of people like to focus on her experiences with Ike. But she yeah. said, really, that this experience that your parents could just like leave. Ooh, and that, she's like mm. they stayed in that. They said she said they stayed in the the um the cabin waiting for them to return. And then they just figured after like a couple of days that, oh, maybe they'll come back in a couple of weeks because, you know, people have cell phones and stuff like that. And right. Then, yeah. You have no access to help to getting help. Yeah. Yeah. And they just realized that they literally had to fend for themselves. Like these are children. And she's 11. How old were the kids? Well, she was 11 when the mother left and then 13. So a young girl who needs her mother, especially and her parents, they just worry. like left them and not even like, oh, I'm going to send for you or like, here's some money until I can send you some more. Like she said, they just like maybe the older siblings 
had some correspondence with the parents, but to her, she just felt like forgotten and like that's discarded. So, that's like that makes all that she later does like, yeah, it's all incredible. But to overcome that is unexpected, I have to say. Yeah. So in that documentary, Tina, simply titled uh, entitled Tina, available on Max, uh, formerly HBO Max. Uh, we should, we should ex- get paid for ads for this. I know. <laughs> this experience with complete abandonment by both parents and her strained and twisted relationship later on with her mother really rocked her to the core. Yeah. Um, you know, again, often it's reported about her relationship and you know, with Ike. And again, that fucker, that bug eyed motherfucker. That's what I'm calling Ike Turner. That's the bug eyed motherfucker. I support um, that. Yeah, like that to me, that's not really because it's all about like a woman's uh even even a woman as phenomenal as Tina Turner, her identity has to be linked to a man to matter, I guess. But I just really was so interested in that, like the feeling of abandonment. It to like a 13 year old right That's, and then she's vulnerable yeah. sexually and just like just like a little girl uh um, it's she is like that's honestly like in terms of a child's development the absolute worst time i mean i understand yeah. you can't leave a five-year-old alone but in terms of like you're just about to get your period you're you suddenly just, have breasts men are looking at you like you yeah. need guidance and you need protection and it's also like kids when they're very young cry because they don't think their parents are coming back. And then you just learn that, oh, yeah, they'll come back. But right. they imagine like they don't like they just come back and every passing day. You realize that they really just discarded you. And for fucking Floyd to move away Mother and not fucker. take the children. I mean, at least take them with you and then drop them off in St. Louis. But they just yeah. left them in the middle of no fucking where. That's like it just I, I got so angry when I was watching the documentary. Like you don't do that to babies. You don't. Um, but the children. You and I, I agree, you don't you don't fuck no, with children. Mm-mm. I'm team baby. Mm-hmm. Even if I want to strangle them because they're annoying. I'm you team baby. Happens. Always it does happen. Team <laughs> children. Mm-hmm. Protect them. Um, but, you know, kids being kids and thank God they have that kind hearted soul and the, you know, so they held on to the promise of reuniting and rebuilding their relationships with, um, at least she did with her mother. Okay. Uh, she lived briefly with her maternal grandmother in Bronzeville. So after a while, the, even the local people were like, I guess they just left them kids there. So uh, somebody reached out to her maternal grandmother who oh, that she lived good. with. Yeah. Okay. Um, and she enrolled in school and she was, you know, considered a tomboy. She joined the cheerleading squad and uh, the basketball uh, team. Good. Carver High School. Yeah. Yeah. And she socialized. She was outgoing and effervescent. And despite that early uh, experience <sighs> with abandonment. So but when she was 16, her grandmother died. So she went to live with her mother in St. Louis. Uh, by that time, one of her sisters had moved to St. Louis, her older sisters. So, OK. So she's reuniting with her mother. I mean, like, um, how awkward is that? You want to well, tell me why you left? You know? No, again, I think kids and she even says she was just happy to be with her mother and her sister, with her family. Um, okay. Kids are very forgiving. Parents yeah. have a lot of opportunities to make it right. So, yeah, it's true. Um, now, in St. Louis, it the, the music scene had exploded. It was vibrant. Uh, she went out and she socialized every chance she got. Her and her sister, especially, were both into music. And and uh, this is kind of how they met Ike Turner. And he came across uh, her 
path because he was a local celebrity, basically. He was a okay. local, uh, well-established, yeah, soul singer, local singer and songwriter. He fronted his own band called the Kings of Rhythm. Um, okay. So I think I knew she, that. Yeah. Again, she was just because he's significantly older than her, but she was just, you know, yeah. out and about. But she wanted to sing. She was she sang back in Bronzeville. She sang in church. Um, and, you know, Ike was like, oh, he's a local celebrity. Like he was like successful, you know. And uh, so she, you know, she she would kind of like practice singing on her own. And then she finally got the courage to ask him if she could sing for him, you know, wanting to get in. Oh, also break into okay. the business. Right. And he he basically kept blowing her off because she's like this skinny little awkward country girl. And like, you know, he's a big city man, you know. Um, yes. And then one night uh, during one of his shows, there was an intermission. So she 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 was like, I have to be brave. I have to be bold. So she just began singing and okay. she blew the crowd away with her. Yes, dad. Tina. Sorry. Yeah. And so I, I was her. like, oh, OK, so sing this and then sing that and then sing that. And everything she sang, it was just amazing because she had a very yeah. distinctive, smoky tone and just she's like this little skinny, like. 16 year old girl 15 16 year old girl with like this voice that you don't expect to come out of her mouth right that's amazing um so her talent was undeniable but it was raw so uh i basically at first was kind of like just a uh a, a brother figure like just like somebody that like you know kind of like a, a mentor really um so in 1960, he and again, he was known for songwriting. And so he would write stuff and, and for like more established artists, singing artists. And while fronting his own band, you just you, again, you got to have a gimmick. So you're always looking for different ways to break in. Um, so in 1960, he wrote a song for a a mildly successful uh, artist and book studio session, a studio session to record it. But okay. the artist was a no show. So. He's like, we already have the session. So anime, you do this because he knew she could sing. So let's try it with a girl voice because this is for a man. Okay. So she did. And he played it for a couple of people. And the president of a local cable, um, uh, I'm sorry, a local record label heard it. And he was blown away. And he okay. told her, he he was like, it sounded like her voice sounded like smoky dirt or something. Like <laughs> That's weird. Okay. Like, so great. And again, they were doing like old time soul music and old school uh, rock and roll too, which was more soul uh, based in a lot of yeah. ways. So um, he, and he told her, uh, told Ike, he should make anime the star of the show because that's how good she was. Okay. So Ike, sensing he had an opportunity he did he did that and renamed uh renamed her Tina, gave her stage name because it rhymed with Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. <laughs> okay. And he I added his okay. <laughs> Yeah, and he added his last name to her uh, with the intention of just like basically replacing her with another Tina Turner if she ever left him like so many else did before him. Wow. Like, at least that's that's the word. I'm like, dude, get a thing. You know what? Like that absolutely tracks. Yep. That makes yeah. sense to me. Mm. So it'd, it'd be a different mm -hmm. Tina Turner. So, but she was officially wow. introduced to the public as an artist uh, under the new moniker Tina Turner from Anime Bullock to Tina Turner in 1960 on a song called A Fool in Love okay. um, in Ike's new group uh, the uh, called Ike and the Tina Turner Review. <laughs> now, 
as you can imagine, she was thrilled because she had dreams of being a singer, a girl singer. And like now she's doing it and people are saying she's talented. And um, so the song was a hit. And shortly after, um, I also added the Iquettes were basically her 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 dancing you know, hype women behind <laughs> okay. her. Um, and basically he just sort of gave her a makeover and like, you know, the because her her performances were always so energetic and they just were, he basically was her A&R person and they worked on like cultivating the image and the group and, but he was right there. Um, so the Icats, man, like ego much? Like, come on, yo. Well, man. I mean, yeah. Now they basically, now again, mentor, mentee, right? This right. is, if Ike Turner was not a piece of shit, he would have been like, like one of my favorite singers is Ella Fitzgerald. I'm not alone. Yes. And one of her early mentors was a man by the name of Chick Webb. Did the same thing. She became his girl singer. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Chick Webb was like a father figure. He supported mm-hmm. her. He nurtured her. He encouraged uh, Miss Ella Fitzgerald. So, um, yeah, but Ike was that bug eyed motherfucker's a piece of shit. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. So after this, A Fool in Love, she exploded on the scene. They became a hit. Um, again, early on, she, Anime thought of uh, her relationship with Ike as a big brother giving her a shot at what she could do. She was right. still young and she actually started dating. She liked boys and she actually dated uh, a guy in Ike's group. So again, nothing romantic about their relationship. She okay. famously said she was never attracted to him and we can understand why. Yeah. She like handsome men. Yeah. <laughs> um, but after like, again, it exploded and she was just amazing. After sensing that basically Anna Mae was going to be his meal ticket to the big time, mm-hmm. he forced her to marry him. What? And he just basically came to her and was like, Oh, like sign this. And then like one night she went to him for support because one of the other band, some man around was harassing her. So she went to him for support and he basically raped her. That's what it is. I mean, Uh, allegedly, I need to say Uh, the way she describes it. He just kind of like just got on top of her and, and she was so surprised and like also like horrified, but also scared because again, this was like a brother to her. So it was like very weird. Um, but yeah, the marriage. She thought, oh, oh, I guess it's just like a business thing. Because, again, she's like a country bumpkin kind of girl. Yeah, she, like she needed a lawyer before she signed anything. Yeah. And she's just talent. She just wants to sing. And she's getting yeah. to do that. And she also felt grateful to him for the chance. Because, again, he was a big deal. And she was a nobody. But we all know that, no, she had talent and star appeal. And he did not. That's why right. he needed no. her. Mm-hmm. So, clearly, this was always the marriage thing was just a to attach her to him permanently. What a um, asshole. Yeah. And I mean, as we all know, I'm not going to go into it. He abused her viciously for many years, yeah. uh, all the while making him very fucking rich. Yeah. Uh, again, if there was ever a candidate to throw a motherfucker down a dark, raggedy walled well, it'd be fucking Ike Turner. Yeah. Bug eyed motherfucker. But anyway, so that, that we all know about that. Makes me very happy. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. And bleed out. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, oh, all those, like slowly. Yeah. Like slowly. Yeah. yeah. And be feasted on by rats. But that. Well, you are watching it because yeah. you're not dead yet. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. Now, all the abuse was laid out in her autobiography, I, Tina, when she became uh, a massively successful solo artist. So I'll spare yes. you all the gory details. Look it up. Also, there's a fabulous. Uh, Oscar-nominated performance by Angela, the Angela Bassett, yes. uh, 
that you guys can check out in the feature film, What's Love Got to Do With It? Um, so good. But, you know, again, it's it's all been laid out. So you guys already know. So he he abused her viciously. Uh, she went through a cycle of like, you know, survivor's guilt, then like uh, making excuses for him, you know, all kinds of stuff. And yeah, then yes. and then getting the courage to finally be like, I got to get the fuck out of here, which happened in 1976. Yeah, Again, that was the year I was the- born, y'all. It's a good year. <laughs> Again, it's in the movie. What's love got to do with it? Um, she so she filed for divorce and he had always told her, like, if you leave me, you get nothing. And she finally in the divorce, which was finalized in 1978, she basically gave up everything like the furs, the cars. He took everything from her. You know what, motherfucker? That's fine. Because she's Tina Turner. She's going to be fine. Exactly. The one thing she asked for is her name, Tina Turner. Yes. And at first he didn't want to give her that because he knew again, because I remember back then when he was like, I oh, yeah. replace her with another so Tina Turner. So many Tina Turners. Exactly. After 20 something, after 15, 16 years. Um, so, but she knew the value of that. So, you know, finally, after getting rid of this limp dick motherfucker, um, mm-hmm. she, her wings, she could finally untie her wings and she could soar. So yeah. she's set to rebranding herself as an old school R&B soul artist to something uh, from a soul old school R&B artist to something else. At first, she wasn't sure. You know, she's trying to find her new creative legs. Uh, she wasn't kind of sure. She knew that she could perform. She always said, I knew I was talented. Right. I could. And her performances were always electrifying, yes. even as a solo artist. But, you know, figuring out like, what's the new image? What's the new mm-hmm. take? You know, rebranding. So she got to get yeah. a gimmick. Yep. She, she had a few appearances on TV shows and guest spots uh, for like variety shows. Uh, she released actually two solo records that petered out. Uh, I didn't even know that. Um, and again, because yeah. maybe her new image hadn't quite been formed. But in 1979, she met a manager by the name of Roger Davies, uh, who had he was an Australian uh, guy. And he had he was a great manager. He basically was the kind of creative support system that artists need. He helped her crystallize what she wanted to say, how she wanted to say it, and basically did what Ike did back in the day, but he was our manager because that's what managers right. and ER people do. And he yep. did not abuse her because <laughs> that was not going to happen again. So much better. Yeah. Yeah. He was a uh, creative partner. So because I mean, he said he saw her once doing like like the shtick was like old hack or whatever. He's like, but you could not take her eyes off of her in Vegas. He's like, she was amazing. And it wasn't even yeah. that many people in the crowd. Like, he know, he had good taste. So um so he actually got her. He had great connections. He got her uh, an opening gig uh, for the Rolling Stones, which is ironic. Oh, yeah. Both Mick and Tina have admitted that uh, Mick Jagger got many of his quote unquote moves from watching her oh. and the iCats. <laughs> you know, awesome. but obviously that's a great sign that her career is moving in the right direction. And also yeah. around this time, she said she was tired of singing old oh, Woe Is Me R&B songs. She wanted to sing or bluesy song. She wanted to sing rock and roll like, yeah, yeah, you know, um, so slowly but surely, you know, her her image and who she was started to slowly change in people's minds as she came into this new act as a solo artist. Um, and then in 1983, she released her cover of Al Green's Let's Stay Together, which became yes. a top. Yeah, it became a top 10 hit. Um 
And it surprised everyone, probably not Tina and Roger, but Capitol Records was so impressed by the single that they rushed an order for an album. So can, can I share something real quick? Of course. That was the song that was played at our wedding after we were married because I was obsessed with that song. And I was it's like, a great one. We have to put it somewhere. And Sal Aww. was like, okay, because he loves Tina Turner, too. So. I mean, who does all of Tina Turner? Right? I mean, yeah. I, don't, I can't be that. friends with you if you don't love Tina Turner. I know, Sorry. I know. Yeah. That means you have no taste. Uh, yeah, obviously. <laughs> so they they were like, we need an album pronto. So they were like, we give you two weeks. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> but I mean, two weeks to a new artist would be like, oh, shit. But to Tina, OK, I got this motherfucker. So wow. they rushed and, uh, you know, she had 20 years of performing under her belt. So she came yeah. through like a champ and she released the title uh, of the album was Private Dancer in yes, 1984. Uh huh. Um, with the standout single. What's love got to, got keep, to do? Got, got to do with it. Yeah. Which became her first hit as a solo artist. Needless to say, her solo career exploded. Yeah. Um, she won numerous Grammy Awards that year and beyond, graced the covers of magazines and had a sold out tour over the next couple of years. Uh, but because sexism everywhere she went, despite this new like uh, like career and image, people kept asking her about Ike. What about Ike? Da, 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 da. Well, it's like, do you exist without a man? Like, I'm very confused. Like, I don't understand. Like, I'm only seeing a woman. Weird. So uh, she and she she lamented this to Roger and he was, you know, they came up with like, maybe you should write a book. So hence I, Tina. Okay. So she wrote this book. But then again, it became about the abuse. And that's and I agree with her. She's always said that always bothered yeah. her because people just want to know all the gory details you know, um, yeah. and it's like, I'm not that person anymore. Right. Like I want to be. Yeah. So she, she shouldn't have to be that person. She shouldn't anymore. have to be that person. And that book, I mean, obviously it was a bestseller. And yes. again, it spawned the Oscar nominated film. What's love got to do with it? It also let Tina dip her toe in the acting realm. And she starred in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. Which was a huge hit as well. Um, and I'm just going to run through this. I mean, Sal likes to talk about that one a lot, by the way. It's his favorite. And he's always like, Tina Turner's in it. Let's watch. She's so good at it. She's, yeah. yeah, she's so great at it. Now, throughout the rest of the 80s, she was a star in her own uh, right uh, to a whole new generation of fans, people who didn't remember the Ike and Tina uh, stuff. And in the 90s, her career was equally hot. She did a uh, numerous world tours. In 1991, she uh, and she was inducted into she and Lumphead, bug eyed <laughs> motherfucker, were inducted into the rock and, rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, I, um, should, I he should be inducted, but not there. Yeah, but it's terrible. It's, you know, she accepted it. But in 1993, go on. I know. In 93, the film What's Love Got to Do With It was released. And in 95, she released a title song to a James Bond film of the same name, Golden Night. It's one of my favorite James Bond theme songs. Uh, basically, her career as a solo artist, like, overshadowed her career as Ike, with Ike. Like, yeah, like by tenfold. Like, I think that's what people don't realize when they keep bringing up fucking Ike. And yeah, so in the 2000s, she was still an A-list star and be she began to settle uh, into the elder stateswoman status with the Kennedy Center honor. Yeah, uh, she released a greatest hits album. I have um, 
she also uh, came out of a ret- semi-retirement and uh, performed with a smitten Beyonce. Beyonce was like, that's oh, my yeah. girl, Miss Tina. Miss Tina Turner mm-hmm. is my girl. So uh, she was just enjoying the life that she had so deserved. She deserved and had cultivated for herself. Um, while Bug-Eyed Man, uh, his career floundered because basically he knew. I want to talk about that. Yeah, he knew that without her, he was nothing. And he was right because when they mm-hmm. broke up, he got all the money, got all that stuff and nothing ever happened after Tina left. Good. And oh, that's he, satisfying. Yeah. He died in 2007. So. Bye. And the following year, she's performing with Beyonce at the Grammy. So. Yeah. Um, in the 2010, she received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammys. In 2013, she was she accepted Swiss citizenship and was living with her best life in a villa. Yes. Um, with her much younger uh, partner turned husband, Erwin Bach. Tina, uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, she revealed in a 2018 memoir, My Love Story, that she had multiple life-threatening illnesses uh, in the mm-hmm. later um, 2010s, uh, she had high blood pressure since 1978, which remained mostly untreated and resulted in damage to her kidneys and eventual oh. kidney failure. It's probably linked to the abuse. Yeah. Um, in 2013, yeah. three weeks after her wedding to Bach, she had a stroke and dis- and needed because they they had been together for years, but then they got yeah. married in 2013. Okay. She needed. Um, uh, she needed to learn how to re- to walk again. In 2016, she was diagnosed with intestinal cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, while she attempt- attempted to treat it with homeo- uh, homeopathy, she oh. it worsened. Yeah. Um, so Bach offered her, uh, he gave her a kidney. Now that's, oh, wow. that's Bay Air. Yep. Okay. Yeah, you yep. keep that man. You keep him. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. she got that transplant in 2017. Um, so she went on to kind of lead a quiet life again, villa, just chilling, yes. living her best life. Earned um, er- she earned it and just being mm-hmm. the queen bee that she is. Um, and on, but this recently on May 24th, 2023, Miss mm-hmm. Tina Turner died in her home in Switzerland at age 83 after uh, a couple years of illnesses, you know, from the complications from the untreated and undiagnosed uh, conditions, but yeah. uh, just I want to run through a couple things that people may not know. In 1967, she was the first black artist and the first female on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, which was its number two issue. Um, Private Dancer, the album in 19 uh, in 2020 was added to the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress. And Tina Turner has the distinction of being a two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, once with uh, Bug-Eyed Man and um, the second with as a solo artist. Yeah, That is why she is the queen. And she has hundreds of accolades. I, it, it, it would take yeah. like three, four or five episodes to go over all her accolades. But that is why Tina Turner is the queen of rock and roll. And that is why... She's also a testament to you keep going, you hope for the best, you work hard, but also believe in yourself and believe in your talent. And no person, no man can give that to you or take that away from you. It is always within you and only partner with people who uplift you. And that's what I really want to focus on, like on her life, on her accomplishments and 
And, you know, one thing I want to bring up as I'm finishing up, like her, the, I, I got from that that documentary, Tina, that the the big heartbreak in her life was not the Ike stuff. It was with her mother, because during that 16, 17 years of being with Ike, she was um, he would all, she would leave. Obviously, she'd try and get away from him. And her right. mother would often tell Ike where she was. Oh, my God. Jesus. Her mother would often betray her. And then after she left Ike, her mother would always like undermine and demean her accomplishments. And she always felt like her mother, like she said, she remembers buying her mother a home and beautiful yeah. multi-million dollar home. Be like, Ma, look what I got. And her being like, mm, you know, being judgmental. That was the true heartache of her, her, her yeah. childhood wound. Not the, the, the Ike stuff again, because again, that centers him in her life. And I really want to center Tina Turner in the life that she so well deserved. That was just she she hadn't seen Ike probably since they got a divorce, you know, unless he came looking for her. Right. Since like 1978. And people kept bringing him up because why? Because sexism. Because sexism. I mean, people are fascinated, I think, you know, benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's a bit of trauma porn, like, ooh, like, what yes. is it like? And like, it's and it's much, just like, yeah, yeah. And it's just like, so like disconcerting. So I just wanted to focus on her. Um, and, you know, that is just a tip of the iceberg of what Tina Turner, like contributed to this world, what her beautiful spirit brought to rock and roll, yes. to R&B, to soul, yes. to America, to the world, to music lovers and to her fans uh, and her haters. Um, but <laughs> Anna Mae Bullock, a.k.a. Tina Turner, a.k.a. the queen of rock and roll, was my notorious woman because she dared to be, become her own woman. And that's what makes yeah. her notorious in a, in a lot of people's minds. So that is Tina Turner. And- I love her so much. I love, like, I feel like I learned so much more about her. Oh, I'm glad. I and mean, like, I have again. loved her from a very small child. So and I, I also encourage people when they think of Tina Turner, not to always think of her in relation to him. But to yeah. think of her in her own right, which I think a lot of younger people do. Um, but, you know, people are just going to be awful and be it because of sexism. It's it's really yeah. that's plain and simple. So uh, but that is Tina Turner. And that wraps up our latest episode of Notorious Women. Guys, remember to follow us on all the things. Yes, please share, like, uh, subscribe. Uh, if you want to support us financially on Patreon, you can do that over at patreon.com slash Notorious Women. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Notorious Women. <laughs> and I'll let Miriam tell you and another way you can uh, other ways you can reach us as well. Okay, you you can email us at NotoriousWMPod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram. Please, please. It is so easy to find. It is Notorious Women Podcast. Super easy. It's a good time. I think it's kind of amusing, our Instagram. So come hang out. Um, You can also DM us on the Instagram if you have any thoughts or ideas or whatever. Whatever, you know, if you have a thought or a reaction to an episode, we'll probably bring it up. So go ahead and do that. 
And if you have any uh, comments or suggestions or corrections uh, on <laughs> our show today, you can leave that to the just just yeah. be a dick about it. Don't be a dick about it. Just be. I smart. mean, we love like, to funny. learn more. Exactly. Yes. Like if we're wrong and that's totally possible. Hashtag not historians. Um, exactly. Let us know. Let us know. Yeah. And with that, we will wrap it up and we will see you guys next week. Bye bye. Bye. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.